0: Well, beginning a new series today that will carry us through the remainder of the month of May on women in the Bible. And we're going to be looking at four different women from Holy Scripture. We're going to look at how all of them, in some way, had their loyalties tested. And uh, we're going to look at at how they made choices. We're going to look at some of the attributes of their faith. And we're going to begin this morning with a woman named Rahab. And so throughout history, uh, there are women who have had their loyalties tested that had to make very difficult decisions about who they would serve or what they would engage in. In World War II, during the time of the Holocaust, there was a lady named Helene Jacobs who helped arrange false identification papers for German Jews. As a German, Ms. Jacobs believed that it was her duty to take a stand against the Nazis. She was in her 30s at that time. And, uh, and she was ultimately arrested and imprisoned uh, for the remainder of the war because of taking part in those counterfeiting efforts to give those German Jews those false papers that would allow them to uh, not have to be carted off to one of those many concentration camps that we are now well aware of if we've studied history from that era. Now, she ultimately lived to be, I think, about 93 years old, lived a full life. But she certainly made sacrifices during that era of her life. Or back during the the American Civil War, a woman named Elizabeth Van Loo was from a wealthy family in Richmond, Virginia. And as part of that family, she made the decision that even though her family owned slaves, that that wasn't what she thought was right. And so she herself was an abolitionist and became a spy for the Union Army. Uh, It cost her all of her wealth. But she made such an impression on one of the Union soldiers that she helped protect that after the war, he provided for her for the rest of her life. She herself lived uh, to be well into her 80s. But we look even further, way further back in history to a woman whose house was on the outer wall of the city of Jericho, a woman who had a rooftop and a window and a rope, and she used them all for the glory of God and God's kingdom. And that takes us to uh, Joshua chapter 2. And what's going on there is that the Israelites are camped on the west side of the Jordan River. Moses has died, and so Joshua, son of Nun, as he's often referred to in Scripture, who was from a young age an aide to Moses and has now become the leader of the Israelite nation. I'm not sure exactly how many people this would have been at this time. We know that at the time that they left Egypt, this would have been, we're told, about 600,000 men. And so scholars estimate that this was a nation of somewhere between 1.5 and probably 3 million people that left Egypt, that crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. Now Joshua was one of 12 spies appointed by Moses because Moses was, uh, was told to choose one from each of the 12 tribes of Israel and to go in and spy out the land. And if you remember that from Numbers chapter 13, if you're familiar with the story... That those twelve spies go into that land, and then they come out with, you know, the, this amazing fruit, all these pom, pomegranates and grapes and all this stuff, and, and they and they give this report. They say, "Man, the land is as advertised. It is indeed a land flowing with milk and honey." And then there was these two spies, Joshua and Caleb, who said. Let's go. Let's take the land that God is giving us. We can do this. But if you'll remember, there's those other ten spies that said, oh my goodness, that's the craziest idea. Because those people are huge. We're like grasshoppers to them. And their cities are so well fortified. There is just no way we can take control of that land. We need to park it right here. And so God upset with them. And of course, that's not all. They, those ten spies spread that throughout the Israelite camp. And the, the people were just trembling in fear. And so God says, okay, if this is all the faith you've got, after everything I've done for you, then you're just going to wander in this desert for the next 40 years and then when you all have died off it's going to be your children, your grandchildren that inherit the promise that I made on oath The church, I don't know if you've ever told somebody you're going to do something and they just write to your face kind of say, oh no, I don't think you can do that I, I, don't, I don't think you can do that are you serious? You're, you're actually going to... You've, you've told me you're going to do that because I don't think you can do that. How insulting would that be? Well, that's exactly the position they put Yahweh in. That the one true God is being told, no, we're not going to go take that land because we don't have enough faith that you're actually going to deliver that to us. And so now here they are, 40 years later, and they're back in that same place on the camp of the, uh, camped on the west side of the Jordan. They've already gone to battle with people in that area. And so now Joshua sends two spies into the land and he gives them the instructions that we want. I want you to specifically tell me what's going on with Jericho. And so those two spies, we read in Joshua 2, go into that land and they go to the city of Jericho. But by verse 3 we figure out that they've been spotted. Now we're told, without really any detail, that they go to the house of Rahab, a prostitute. And so they go into this house. The only thing I can figure is that they go into the house because they know they've been seen. And they're looking for a way to escape. And they see that this particular house is situated where it's on the outer wall of the city. That that might just be a way for them to get out. And so by verse 3 we're told that the king of Jericho sends word to Rahab. We know that the spies went into your home. Send them out. Now... Rahab has to make a decision here. She's got to figure out where her loyalties are going to lie. And she appears to me to be a woman who can think pretty quick on her feet. Probably a fair amount of what we might call street smarts. And so Rahab immediately sends word back to the king and says, you know what, they were here, but they've already gone. If you hurry... You might be able to catch them. Reminds me of the old movies and I'm dating myself, you know the old movies where you know, the, the people would show up, the, you know, the posse shows up looking for the bad guys, and, and they say, "Well, you know what? They went that away." And so there they go off in one direction, and then, of course, they didn't go that away. They they went the other way, or they're still here, they're about to go the other way. And that's exactly what's going on in Joshua 2. And so we pick it up because she has hid them up on the roof of her house. And so we pick it up with verse 8 in Joshua 2. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely... Destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven, is God in heaven above, and on earth below. I'm going to stop there for just a second, church. Now think about what Rahab is saying here. What she's essentially saying here is I believe that your god is the true god. Now, she is a Canaanite and she is a she's a harlot. There's no other way to paint this. And so she is somebody that definitely would have been on the outside when you're thinking about the people of God. But yet God is using her in a very real and very important way right here. Let's not miss that. That God has a big picture plan for His people. And part of that plan, a major part of that plan, is to bring them into the most desirable land of that entire region. This land where you can actually grow stuff. Because you go east of the Jordan and it kind of looks like the surface of the moon. Because this is a place where lots of people are going to say, Wow, they've got the most choice land anywhere around here. And so in this moment, she is saying, you know what? Everyone here is melting in fear because we know that it's your God. She never says, man, y'all have a mighty awesome army over there. No. She says we know that it's the Lord that has given you the success that you've achieved thus far. She even knows the story far enough back that she says, I know what happened those 40 years ago to the people that came before you. Your parents, your grandparents, I know what the Lord did for them when he brought them out of Egypt. She is confessing, saying of all the gods we have, they can't do what your one God, the true God, can do. And so in this moment, she's giving them valuable information. We're melting in fear. When your opponent is in fear, you have a major advantage on your opponent. And that's exactly what's going on right here. Verse 12, she says, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us this land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. She said to them, go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return and then go on your way. And so she's given them very specific instructions after making a deal saying, hey, I've protected you guys so I know what's going to happen. You're going to go back and you're going to come back here at some point and you're going to take this city and when you do, please don't harm my family. Please, don't, don't hurt us and they tell her right away it's, it's all good our lives for your lives and so then they ultimately if we were to read to the end of the chapter they, they tell her to hang a scarlet cord or some translations may say a crimson cord from that same window that they are lowered down through and they say when we come back and we see that crimson cord Then we're going to know that that's the house where we don't harm anyone. And so, again, a sharp lady tells them now you need to hide out up in the hills three days, and then you can go on your way. By that time, they will have figured, (coughs) excuse me, they will have figured that they have lost you, that you're nowhere around here. And so we look at this woman of tremendous faith and how she has taken on the king of Jericho. She didn't cower uh, to the king in her city that she did what she thought was right. Rahab had to choose a side and she chose the side of the Lord. Now, We look at how Rahab is mentioned uh, in other places throughout New Testament Scripture. Hebrews 11, which we know to be this sort of chapter of fame among uh, First Covenant or Old Testament Christians. uh, Old Testament people of God, not Christians yet, but you know what I'm saying here. Uh, People of tremendous faith. Uh, By faith, the prostitute Rahab, in Hebrews uh, 11.31, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And then in James chapter 2, we read, In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? Now, bless her heart, how would you like to have whatever sin you've committed attached to your name for the rest of your life? That's kind of where she is. You know, they keep bringing up, you know, what what she was doing, what she had done. But they do it in the sense of saying, look what God does. Look how God redeems lives church it's a reminder that no matter where someone has been, no matter what they have done God can use that person those of us gathered here this morning church isn't it comforting to know that regardless of what choices we might have made in the past choices that we can spend a lifetime regretting That God is willing to redeem any life that calls on His name. Oh my goodness. Saying, look, when it mattered most, she showed faith. She showed courage. I wonder how many Christians today are just so pragmatic in their thinking that they just can't bring about or muster the kind of courage that God's Spirit is calling them to. I've seen examples of people that can rationalize away doing something. And i got to confess, there are times myself that I felt maybe that I was being called to do something and I managed to rationalize away, well, no, that's not for me. Kind of like Moses before the burning bush, right? Oh, I'm not the one you want. I'm not eloquent. I'm, I'm way too forgetful to serve you in that capacity. I'm, I am just not smart enough to serve you in that capacity. I think you really want somebody else God says no, no you're Moses, you're the guy you're the guy I want to the point that Moses throws up so many objections that God starts to really get frustrated with him and I see that as sort of this example of what we can often do God's spirit is leading us in a certain direction and we can just rationalize our way out of it just say well you know I I just wouldn't be comfortable doing that you know I I just don't know if I possess the right skill set to do that and if you're willing church family if you're willing it's amazing where God can take you It is amazing how God can equip you for whatever task for which you're called. I've said it before, but I have to say it again. I remember when I first entered ministry, I was 40 years old. And I'm like, okay, Lord, I'm in ministry now. This appears to where you've wanted me for the last several years. And I'm here now. I'm on a church staff something I didn't really think I was qualified for, didn't possess the right amount of education, the right kind of education. And then I would see ministers that did other things. And I would say, I'm glad there are people that will go into the jail and do Bible study there. That's not for me. I'm glad there are people that will go to a foreign place Sleep on those foreign beds and eat that foreign food. I couldn't do that. And I'm glad there are people that will counsel addicts because that's not me. That's that's, that's not for me. I'll do lots of things, but I'm, I'm grateful that God has called those other people. And then I came to a place called Hohenwald, Tennessee. And what have I done? I've done Bible study in the jail. I've gone to Honduras. Got confirmation for my next trip this past week. Got that email that's like, here's your ticket, you know, leaving in June, getting back in July. And on the 14th, is that this Saturday? Get to go to a graduation for Hope Center. The first of my phase one counselees graduates. Praise God. A year of sobriety, a year of not using, a year of slowly getting back relationships that had been lost. And God used me to play just a little bit of a role in that. Church family, if we will yield to God, He will take us places we never imagined going. For some of you, it might be just teaching that class that you've been asked to teach. Maybe Jeff Holbrook at some point is going to tap you on the shoulder again and say, hey, could we get you to teach that class? And maybe it's time to say yes. Maybe someone is going to ask you to take part in a ministry of some kind. Maybe it's those sign-up sheets out there on the table for Vacation Bible School. It's not going to look the same for all of us and that's okay. Okay. The church family God equips people when he calls them he doesn't hang his children out to dry and so that's something we need to be aware of that our Christian love is a love of action not a love of theory or philosophy what is God calling you to do What is your courageous moment? For Rahab, it was bucking the king of her city and saying, no, I'm going to send them on a wild goose chase and I'm going to make a deal with the men who represent the one true God. And so she does just that. And then she follows through on it, because we find that in Joshua chapter 3, while the Jordan is at flood stage, they take the Ark of the Covenant and the priests, as soon as their feet hit the water, God stops the river upstream, and then allows them to cross on dry land, just as the Israelite nation did decades before. And so they go in and they take the city and we find that they do remember. They do remember Rahab. And the story doesn't end there. I'm sure if I asked for a show of hands there would be at least some that would say that the book of Ruth is among their favorites in all of Scripture. It's not a long book. Four chapters. Maybe that's why some of us like it, right? But it reads as a narrative. It's a very wonderful story. And what we find is that when we get to Matthew chapter 1, that this guy we read about in the book of Ruth, this guy named Boaz, this guy who treats his employees with respect, this guy who is is a good enough person that he will offer protection to an immigrant woman, a woman from this place called Moab, who is gleaning grain in his fields, and that he will offer her protection, a widow and a foreigner. But we get to Matthew 1 and we look at the lineage of Jesus and then we find that there's this guy named Salmon and Salmon has a wife and her name is Rahab and she's the one that gives birth to Boaz does Boaz get to be a stand up guy by accident I think it was probably some pretty good parenting that got him there don't you church Because God's story does that. God's story says, you're going to be known as this. (laughs) You're going to have this this unsavory word attached to your name. But for those that really dig into my word, they're going to see that you were more than that. You were more than just a woman who had a moment of courage. Courage. That you were a woman whose life I redeemed. And she was blessed with a husband. And she was blessed with a son. A son who did some wonderful things. And furthered the big story of God's people. What a beautiful story that is. And so we come to the close of our time together this morning. Colossians 1 verses 13 and 14 reminds us of redemption. For He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Praise God that He forgives our sins. Praise God that He redeems our lives. And church family, let us look at every life, no matter who they are, no matter what they've done, no matter what kind of unsavory name might be attached to their name. But let's look at them as someone that God loves and someone who can still be redeemed. And let's love all the people who are redeemable. Which of course means, let's do our dead level best to love everyone. If you're with us this morning and you have not yet had an opportunity or taken the opportunity to confess Jesus as Lord, we offer a song of invitation to allow you to do just that. And maybe you're uncomfortable walking down the aisles. Many of us can understand that. But please seek out me or one of our elders here and let us tell you how to become a child of God. If you're with us this morning and you need the prayers of a faithful body, the invitation's for that reason also. Rick, let's stand and sing.